I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, and this is Orbital Path, a show from PRX about the cosmos and our place in it. What one great-grandfather was a sailor from, from Trieste. I went up to the Hubble Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore to talk to this amazing scientist who had seen something incredible. I'm Marco Chiaberge. I work for the Space Telescope Science Institute and for the European Space Agency. Uh, I work on the Hubble Space Telescope. Marco Chiaberge studies active galactic nuclei, which means he studies really massive black holes that live at the center of galaxies. Black holes cannot be seen directly. Uh, we can see what's around the black hole. So what we call quasars, for example, are very important objects for us to study black holes. Now, the whole point about black holes is that they are black. No light escapes them. They are completely invisible. But the cool thing is, black holes are actually some of the brightest things in the entire universe. It's not from light coming from inside the black hole, but it's from a really, really hot disk of gas, stuff falling into the black hole. And at the very heart of galaxies, we call that a quasar, a giant hot disk of material falling into a black hole. And these things can get so bright, you can see them clear across the universe. We can see a quasar because there is matter that falls onto a black hole. And when matter, gas, falls onto a black hole, becomes very hot. It forms what we call an accretion disk. It's really like the shape of a disk. And, and the matter falls onto the black hole uh, in that way. Uh, it becomes very hot and it becomes also very bright. Uh, sometimes the luminosity of a quasar exceeds the luminosity of the whole galaxy where the black hole is hosted. So you can think of a quasar as basically a signpost, that there's a really supermassive black hole here. And they always occur in the very, very heart of galaxies, right at the center of mass of hundreds of billions of stars. Kia Berge studies these very bright active galactic nuclei with the Hubble Space Telescope. And one day back in 2015, he was looking at one that was about a billion light years away. It was called 3C186. And he noticed something was very, very much out of whack with this one. At some point, uh, uh, I was looking at the images that were coming from Hubble, and I saw this object. And what I saw was a very bright star, something that looked like a star, and that's what quasars look like in telescope images. And around it, there was a galaxy. And that is what we expect to see. The problem was that the galaxy and the quasars were not centered at the same place. And that was totally unexpected. At first, I didn't think uh, this could be the interpretation. I had absolutely no idea what we were looking at. That was something that was really strange, and I, I kind of jumped on the chair. So the thing is, this quasar should have been in the very center of this galaxy. That's where quasars are. That's kind of the definition, an active galactic nucleus, right? But instead, there was something a billion times the mass of the sun, a giant supermassive black hole, and it was careening out of the galaxy at four and a half million miles per hour. Just thinking about that amount of energy kind of boggles my mind. How can you take something that's a billion times the mass of the sun and accelerate it to four and a half million miles an hour? The amount of energy that must have required is inconceivable. You need a huge amount of energy to give the black hole a kick that is sufficient to make him travel at that speed. And uh, 
to the best of our knowledge, there is only one mechanism that can do that. Uh, the energy that was uh, given by the kick is equivalent to 100 million supernovae exploding simultaneously. And there is nothing else other than the energy uh, produced by gravitational waves that can uh, generate that energy. So what Kiyabergia had observed was something really unusual and really extraordinary. These quasars, these supermassive black holes, normally sit in the very heart of galaxies. And we think that quasars are already the consequence of many big black holes merging together. Usually they all just spiral together and then come to sort of a rest in the middle of the galaxy, one big combined black hole. But in this case, something had really smacked this black hole. It was not in the center of the galaxy. It was moving so fast. And that's what made people think about gravitational waves. Now, we are surrounded by basically a fabric of space and time kind of woven together. And anytime anything moves, space-time sort of adjusts to it. That's what we call gravitational waves. But you can imagine that if you have something millions or billions of times the mass of the sun, you can make some pretty big waves. In the case of this observation, something had to actually smack this black hole, shoot it out of the center of the galaxy. So what we think happened was that two large black holes merged together the way they usually do. They sort of spiraled together closer and closer, producing more and more gravitational waves. But something was odd about this case. Maybe one of the black holes was a lot bigger than the other. Maybe they were spinning very quickly in different directions. But whatever happened, when these two black holes came together, something was very off balance. The gravitational waves went off more in one direction than the other. It shot this thing clear out of the center of the galaxy. The recoil you get from shooting a gun is the uh, easiest thing the, that I can think about. To me, gravitational waves are sort of a wonderful contradiction. They happen because of the most powerful events in the universe, things that are unbelievably violent and just involve incredible masses and velocities. And yet at the same time, they are really, really hard to detect. They've eluded us for over a hundred years. Einstein predicted the existence of gravitational waves all the way back at the very beginning of the 1900s. But it took us up until now to actually see that Einstein was right. So this time on Orbital Path, gravitational waves, what are they? And if they're generated by such powerful events, why did it take us so long to find them? And what do they tell us about the universe? Incredibly, that sound that you're hearing right now is actually the sound of a wave in space and time. That's a gravitational wave. And that recording comes from the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. And it was picked up on September 14th, 2015. Now, LIGO has two detectors, one in Louisiana and one in Washington State. And on that date, these two detectors vibrated in exactly the same way, with a tiny little lag in time. And what was going on is that we were actually detecting the waves of two really big black holes. They were both dozens of times the mass of the sun, and they were merging together in a distant galaxy. This happened 1.3 billion years ago, and it sent out a ripple in space and time itself. It was the single most powerful event we've ever detected since the detection of the Big Bang. 
Wow. Yeah, all the power um, exceeded all the power of all the stars in the observable universe combined, yet none of it came out as light. It all came out in gravitational waves. This is Jana Levin. She's a theoretical astrophysicist at Columbia University. I'm a professor, um, actually they gave me a title, so I have to say it now, the Claire Tao Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University, and I'm also Director of Sciences at Pioneer Works. I really wanted to talk to Dr. Levin because she has actually written the book about how we detected gravitational waves, the whole history of the search. Now, gravitational waves are kind of difficult to picture. We're not talking about a light wave. I mean, this isn't something that you pick up in visible light or as x-rays or anything like that. We are literally talking about a wave in space and time itself. Probably the best analogy is a pond. The water of the pond is actually the fabric of space and time, what Einstein described as space-time. And for the moment, that's still, nothing's happening in that. There might be tiny little ripples by the wind, maybe some little leaves falling on the pond, but more or less the surface of the pond is quite still. Then something big happens. We throw in a really big rock to the very center of the pond. By the time you reach the edge of the pond, there are very small, almost difficult to detect little ripples coming off that. And that's what happened with these two big black holes. The rock was the two black holes merging together, swirling faster and faster around each other until they collided and formed one big black hole. That event actually lasted less than a second. And we only caught the last three circles as those two black holes went around each other before they combined. That actually sent a ripple across the fabric of space and time that persisted 1.3 billion light years away, clear across the universe. And we picked that up with our sensors here on Earth. So let's take another listen to the sounds we heard earlier. That first deep sound, that is the exact frequency, the exact shape of the gravitational waves LIGO picked up, converted into sound waves for us to hear. The second higher chirpy sound is the same wave form, but played at a higher frequency that's easier for humans to hear. So in a way, gravitational waves do apparently make noise. Levin likes to think of them as the sound of the universe. It's interesting, people get really um, resistant to that analogy because people want to imagine that there's no sound in space. And there's no sound in space because there's it's mostly empty. There's not a medium. We hear sound through air or through water, or even you know, New York City apartment walls. But, um, but in space, you think that because there isn't a medium, that there's no sound. But these are waves in the shape of space-time itself. And, um, and so space itself is the medium. It's as though if space can curve, then those curves have to be able to move and adjust as, uh, as big structures move, move around. Um, and so that creates waves in, in the actual shape of space. Levin's book came out just after scientists announced they'd observed gravitational waves for the first time in February 2016. It's called Black Hole Blues and Other Songs from the Universe. If you were um, in an empty universe except for near, let's say, two orbiting black holes, um, it's conceivable that your eardrum would actually ring in response to the changing shape of space and time and that you would hear that uh, gravitational wave, as we call it, um, literally with your ears <laughs> as actual sound. And amazingly, they do ring space-time in the human auditory range.
idea of gravitational waves started more than 100 years ago with Albert Einstein. And the idea is that basically anything with mass that moves sort of shakes the very medium of space and time itself. But if something really big happens, like two merging black holes or two neutron stars spiraling together, then these waves might actually be big enough to detect. You mentioned Einstein. Einstein was the first person to propose the existence of gravitational waves. Is that correct? Yeah, and he kept changing his mind about it. He said the most important thing that he needed to turn to as soon as he published his great theory of general relativity, he said the most important thing he needed to focus on next was the existence or non-existence of gravitational waves. He said, look, if the sun curves space and time and the Earth is simply falling along a curve in that space time, then what happens if the sun moves? If the sun moves, those curves have to follow the sun. They have to change. And so the question was, do they carry energy away, and are they? can they affect other things, and are they, in some sense, real? And he went back and forth for decades on whether or not gravitational waves were real. It was very difficult stuff. When did we really begin to, to nail down the idea that they had to be there? Well, honestly, and uh, so this is what, 1915, he's thinking about it already. 1916, he writes a paper on gravitational waves. He keeps changing his mind, writing papers saying they do exist, they don't exist, contradicting himself. And by the 30s, he still said, if you ask me of gravitational waves, I would have to tell you that I just don't know. But it is certainly an incredibly important question. Once Einstein predicted that these waves must exist, there, there must have been kind of a race on to be the first to detect them. And there were some misfires in that, too. Yeah. One of the um, pioneers of the whole field um, is Joe Weber. And in the late 60s, he announced that he had detected gravitational waves. Um, and basically, he had this heavy aluminum cylinder that would ring like a tuning fork if a gravitational wave passed. And he would measure the vibrations of this bar, known as a Weber bar. And if, if it was ringing, then he was detecting gravitational waves. Now, he became incredibly famous. People were so excited because they were still wondering if gravitational waves were even real at this time. And here's this guy saying he found them. I mean, he became one of the most famous scientists alive. He was on the cover of magazines. He was heralded. And um, very quickly, people reproduced his bars everywhere, Moscow, Scotland, Italy, uh, all over the States. Um, it was literally everywhere. And um, nobody heard a thing. That was a very painful rejection of Weber's detections. It became a very sort of painful story, um, and Joe defended himself and his results for, for nearly 30 more years, uh, maybe more than 30 years, actually. And I think it was a very painful for people, and I think it also cast kind of a black shadow over LIGO, which was born in a, the subsequent decade as an idea um, after Joe's initial announcement. And they had to fight the negative uh, sentiments of their colleagues against getting into this again. You know, and want to get this, this was a disaster, a disaster for science, and they didn't want to get into it again. And they were not supportive of the project. And um, by the time people started designing this experiment, LIGO, um, in the early 70s, just with ideas, just dreaming about what kind of instruments could exist to detect gravitational waves. By that time, it was still unclear whether or not gravitational waves were real. Now, the whole idea of LIGO is actually pretty audacious. People wanted a lot of money. It was actually the most expensive project that the National Science Foundation had ever funded. And they wanted to build these two observatories that honestly didn't have any guarantee of working. That's quite a risk. So in the 1990s, construction began. And starting in about the year 2000, LIGO was turned on, and we waited to see whether it could really detect gravitational waves. 
but for eight years, nothing really happened. There were no gravitational waves that were detected. After a while of this, LIGO shut down for an upgrade. The scientists there had figured out a way to make it a lot more sensitive. So in September 2015, Advanced LIGO was turned on. And this is the amazing thing. It was just two days later that we found gravitational waves for the first time. I mean, the, the thing that's really incredible about LIGO and how it was able to actually directly detect these gravitational waves, the compression of time and space is tiny at, at these scales. So I, be, I believe that the amount that these lasers compressed was a factor of 10 to the minus 20th? Yeah, 10 to the minus 20, 10 to the minus 21 area. So the numbers we're talking about here are kind of unimaginably small. We're talking about a hundredth of a billionth of a billionth. Now, the thing about LIGO is that LIGO has these two arms, long metal tubes basically, that are two and a half miles long apiece. And inside each of these arms, there's a laser. What the laser is really doing is it's just keeping track of the location of a mirror far away. But um, what these mirrors do is they basically float on space and time so that if a gravitational wave passes, they'll bob on the wave ever so slightly. And what the laser is trying to account for is uh, where's the mirror? It's just what the, the only role of the laser. And, um, and it, it keeps track of the mirror to one ten thousandth the width of a proton over four kilometers. So this is incredible to think about. Gravitational waves are so faint that by the time they make their way to us, these lasers have to measure a change that's really, really tiny. And that's one of the reasons it took so long for scientists to announce the result. They wanted to be sure that signal that jostled the LIGO sensors truly was a gravitational wave. Do you remember where you were when you heard that they had yes. actually made a detection? You know, by this point, I had been writing the book in parallel uh, with their experiment. So the LIGO experiment picked up the signal of gravitational waves in September 2015. But scientists need to be very careful about this stuff. This was a huge announcement. So the official announcement didn't happen until five months later, in February of 2016. And that's because they had to check and recheck their result and make sure everyone agreed. I said, if a discovery happens, um, I'll write an epilogue. That was always the plan, you know? Um, but I didn't expect a discovery to happen, not for years. Even the team, people on the team were telling me, oh, it'll be 2018 before anything succeeds. And then I got a note, that must have been November, and uh, it was from the director of LIGO, David Reitze, and uh, the subject line was confidential communication about LIGO, and just my heart started pounding. <laughs> I was, I knew, you know, and I literally leapt up. I just couldn't even read on, and every sentence that I read was like that. I jumped away, and I, and then of course at the end they tell me what happened. You know, we, on September 14th, 2015, we made a definitive detection of two black holes colliding, and we've detected the first gravitational waves and the first pair of black holes. And um, I was just so thrilled, and at the end they say, now don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I had to really struggle to keep it to myself. Um, and it, was, it really was kind of the special time when we had this knowledge and we shared it and we couldn't wait to, you know, unleash it on the world. <laughs> now LIGO is a really powerful tool. It actually made the first direct confirmation of gravitational waves. And that helps us make sense of how the universe works. It confirms the ideas of Einstein. But it also has its limitations. 
I mean, literally, when a truck drives by somewhere nearby LIGO, or when there's an earthquake in China, the whole detector can shake and get offline. And this means that it's very hard for other gravitational wave detectors across the world to actually get the data they need. There's a sister gravitational wave detector in Italy called Virgo, and it's having trouble because of issues with the materials required for such a delicate observation. In the case of Virgo, there are tiny glass filaments that just keep shattering. So the next generation gravitational wave detector will probably be built in space, where there's a lot less interference. LISA, which stands for the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, is a joint project of the European Space Agency and NASA. And it's supposed to launch sometime in the 2030s. And instead of being almost 1,900 miles apart, the way the LIGO detectors in Washington and Louisiana are, LISA's detectors will be a lot further apart than that. Millions of kilometers between the spacecraft. So each spacecraft will basically protect a mirror inside. And so it'll be small, a meter, meter and a half across, a very small spacecraft. And inside is just this mirror that's floating freely. And the spacecraft's just kind of protecting it from solar winds or I don't know what. And, uh, and uh, millions of kilometers away will be another one uh, or two. They're going to probably make a triangular pattern is the current design. And so these mirrors will send lasers between them over this great distance and just kind of keep checking in. Where are you? I'm over here. Where are you? And so if a gravitational wave passes, they will literally, like buoys on a wave, bob around a bit. And they will uh, be able to measure the difference in their locations by sharing this information um, between the spacecraft. The perk of putting these detectors so much farther apart is that it will allow us to see even tinier gravitational waves, which means we can detect them from farther and farther away in space. And this means that we'll be looking farther back in time, too basically back to the first less than second. The number is also staggeringly small and it sort of depends on details of the universe, but you know, a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. Certainly one of the holy grails in modern astrophysics is to try to figure out what happened at the moment of the Big Bang when the universe started expanding. And kind of frustratingly for us, this is not something we can study with regular telescopes that use light. When you look far enough back in time, the universe was so hot and so dense that you actually can't see through it anymore. It becomes opaque. This is literally true. If we look out in any direction to a time about 13.7 billion years ago, there's a wall. We actually can't see any farther back in time. And the distance actually is about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. There was a lot of amazing stuff going on in the first couple hundred thousand years after the Big Bang that right now is completely blocked off. So what's the only thing that can actually give us observations where even light doesn't go? And that's gravitational waves. Using gravitational waves, we can look farther and farther back to the very moment of the Big Bang. Maybe, and this is incredible, to the moment the universe expanded. In principle, the Big Bang literally did make a bang, and it, it rumbled space and time just in, in a chaotic way. So we expect it sounded very noisy. The problem that people foresee with detecting um, those gravitational waves is that it's widely believed that there was an era um, very early in the universe's history, way less than a second after the universe was created, when it expanded extremely rapidly and aggressively. And if that happened, it would crush the signal. It would make it just incredibly quiet today. And so um, I think the question is whether or not this era drowned out 
detectable gravitational waves, created some af subsequently, um, those kinds of things is what we would be investigating. So you're really talking about detecting the earliest moments conceivable. The wonderful thing is that LIGO wasn't a one-time success. LIGO again picked up gravitational waves in December of 2015. And once more, these were produced by black holes that were something like 1.4 billion light years away. Now, that's not very far compared to the ultimate scale of the universe. If we're going to see back to the very moment of the Big Bang, we need to look a lot farther back in time. The Big Bang happened about 13.8 billion years ago, and that very moment, the very moment of expansion, is completely lost to us. There is no way, using any type of light, that we can possibly see it. And if those gravitational waves really did survive, then for the first time in human history, we could actually detect what happened the very moment space and time itself was born. If you're looking for a podcast related to what we do on Orbital Path, try the latest season from Offshore, from Honolulu Civil Beat and PRX. Offshore is an investigative podcast that tackles complex social issues in America, starting with what's happening in Hawaii. In this new Offshore season, the series looks at the sacred mountain of Mauna Kea, where some Native Hawaiian groups are fighting the construction of the world's largest telescope. It's a story of land and power, of science and tradition and belief, Offshore talks with astronomers and Hawaiians, and their producers also travel to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in the Arizona desert, where Native Americans are fighting other developments that run counter to their cultural beliefs. This Mission to the Stars has been commanded by Justin O'Neill. Andrea Mustaine edits. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, co-pilot from the PRX Mothership. We're supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. And as always, you can hear more of our shows at orbital.prx.org. I'm Dr. Michelle Thaller, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now. <laughs>